0: into the topic, what we're going to be talking about tonight. I'm excited to be back with you. If you have a copy of your scriptures, we're going to open them up. We're going to start a new book tonight, the book of 2 Samuel, and we're going to begin in chapter 5. But before we do that, um, you ever had one of those kind of like um, nostalgic moments where you kind of go through? I was scrolling through my phone uh, just um, on Thursday at the end of the day and just kind of looking back over... Uh, just the multiple years of uh, just what God has done and, and just the, 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 my life in pictures. If you've ever done that and you go through and you kind of look at it and you kind of get nostalgia and you look at, we have got young young kids and so we see there's baby pictures and then there's them toddling and all that kind of stuff. And I was looking through and I was trying to think of um, a great kind of way to segue into what we're gonna be talking about tonight. And uh, I was looking through... Um, our pictures of when we first arrived, my wife and I, uh, on the mission field in Taiwan. And uh, the very first night we were there, it was a 24 hour combined fl- hours of flight uh, to get there. We were exhausted. We had taken three planes uh, with a young child, uh, and we got into town. And when we got there, uh, I believe this picture was from the next morning. We got up, and uh, our neighbors—we uh, were—we were temporarily staying in the our, our missionary host's house, and our daughter was there. And this is our neighbor's daughter, and they were sitting on the couch. Uh, and they were looking at each other. And it was the, kind of their first time ever seeing, for her, it was the first time ever seeing a white kid. And for Adeline, it was kind of the, one of the first times being up close in a, a new area with a lot of people that didn't look like her. And I thought that there was no other picture in my, um, my scroll that kind of captured the idea of uncertainty more than this picture that I have. And there was a lot of uncertainty in those times. We had just moved to a new country, didn't know the language, wasn't familiar really with the culture um but we knew God had there had us there to serve uh for that time. And as I began to look and scroll more over my life, I began to kind of come to the realization that as I was looking through each phase of our life from year to year to year, that I could kind of pick out and remember there a certain level of uncertainty at each and every single one of those steps. And I kind of came to this realization, it's it's no it's no uh Einstein moment, but every day is filled with uncertainty. And I think the Bible speaks to that a little bit where it kind of talks about, hey, don't worry about what, what tomorrow's going to bring because tomorrow's going to have, it's going to be full of its own problems. Uh, uh, sufficient is the day, the evil thereof. Um, don't, y'all, you know, We're not promised tomorrow, the scripture says. And I, I as I look back at those times, I, I'm filled with the idea that Every single day, there's uncertainty, and I think that we do all that we can to try to mitigate that. We we try to plan. We try to have our finances in order. Uh, We have wills you know figured out so that we know what happens after we pass. Uh, We try to make sure that we pay our bills. We try to make sure that we have we're taking our vitamins. We try to mitigate as much of the uncertainty of life that we can, but the the harsh reality is, is that we really have no idea what tomorrow might bring. We might think we're certain. We might think we've checked all the boxes. We might think we're good to jump into our day, but we have absolutely no idea for sure what will happen at the next moment of our life. So we are filled in our lives with just an uncertainty at every angle. In uh, the first couple chapters of the scripture we're going to look into, 2 Samuel, um, the first four chapters, the nation of Israel is in unparalleled, unparamounted, unparalleled, uh, uh, uncertain times. We looked at last week as we're marching through the life of David that King Saul has now passed. He was killed in battle along with many of his sons. And there was an incredible amount of uncertainty that followed after the king's passing. The first four chapters of Samuel, I wouldn't have a chance to study all of them tonight, so I'll just summarize them briefly. The first four chapters, uh, the nation of Israel is plunged into chaos and into civil war. David finds out he mourns the passing of Saul. And as he prays unto the Lord, the Lord says, I want you to set up your kingdom, not not right away in a very prominent place, but I want you to go to Hebron. And so he takes his mighty men and he goes to Hebron, and there he's anointed uh, king, but only over the tribe of Judah. And the rest of the tribes side with a guy named Ishbosheth, which is one of the sons of Saul, who was not in the battle and was still living. And so now, all of a sudden, we have a civil war that's brewing in this country of Israel, in these, in these tribes. And so um, there are two generals, Joab and Abner, and uh, they don't get along with each other. And um, each one of them is kind of being the, the general, if you will, of the armies. And there, there's a lot of fighting. There's a lot of killing. Um, unfortunately, like I said, this is a civil war that's going on between Israel and Judah. Um, there's some uh, unfortunate events that happen um, in Ishbosheth's camp. Uh, he's assassinated, and then the um, uh, the the uh, the general uh, who uh, kind of switches camps, if you will. He was Ishbosheth's general, then he goes to work for David. He's assassinated by a guy who doesn't doesn't like him because he killed his brother in war. And there's just all this all this kind of uh, uh, tragedy, and uncertainty that kind of just pours over the next few years in Israel. But eventually we get to chapter 5. And chapter 5, we see something amazing happening. And I think the reason why that last song is such a great segue into what we're going to talk about tonight is cuz tonight we're going to talk about we're going to see King David and we're going to make some parallels between what happens in King David's David's life as he is coronated king as he sets up Jerusalem and we're going to look forward to the seed of David who is Jesus who will one day be crowned king and bring a new Jerusalem and we're going to see that even though we live in a world that is shaken with uncertainty that you and I as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ can live with hope today, knowing that Jesus will one day fulfill the foreshadowing events of David's crowning and taking of Jerusalem, which is what we're going to look at in 2 in, uh, in Samuel chapter 5. So let's go to the Lord in prayer as we dig into the scripture tonight. Father, we thank you so much for the word of God that um, is a light into our path. God, thank you so much for the word of God that is infallible, that is without error. Father, that you have painstakingly, Lord, and over centuries put together for us and preserved for us so that we can know it, that we can hide it in our hearts, and Lord, that we can be transformed by it to be uh, to be made into the image of your son. Father, I thank you so much for the history that we can learn through some of these books, Lord, these rich narratives that can teach us principles of how to live and how to follow you. But Lord, as we look towards the future, Lord, as we as we look into the past uh, tonight in our scripture, Lord, I pray that you would help us to leave tonight t- marveling, Lord, at the Uh, the wonderful way that you have knitted uh, the past and the, the present and the future together, Lord, to give us hope. God, I pray that you would help us, Lord, that if there's one in here tonight who has never truly been born again, they've never truly called upon Christ to save them, that Lord, that they would not just learn tonight some historical facts, but God, that they would be transformed by the word of God, that the Holy Spirit would use this to, to, to bring them to a point of understanding that the only way to truly have hope in this world is to know Jesus as Savior. Lord, thank, we thank you so much for what you're going to teach us tonight. We ask that the Holy Spirit would be upon this time as we break open the word of God. Father, teach us from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we enter into 2 Samuel chapter 5 in this new, uh, this new ch- uh, change in David's life. We've. Uh, in, in quick summation, he's started from a shepherd boy to a giant killer to one who was running on the lamb, uh, who is, uh, uh, has seen, seen a lot of high points, who's seen a lot of down points, who's gone to live with the enemy, who's lived in caves, and now he's been through a civil war, and now in chapter 5, things are going to change and to begin to fall into place for David as he is humble enough to follow after God's plan for his life. And I want us to look at three events that will happen in this chapter, three events and their corresponding events in the future that we see, as we see uh, Jesus fulfilling this for, these foreshadowing events. The first event I want us to look at comes from the first five verses and that is the king is crowned. The king is crowned. Verse, verse 1 in chapter 5 reads this, "'Then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron, "'and spake, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. "'Also in times past, when Saul was king over us, thou wast he that led us out and brought us in Israel.'" And the Lord said unto thee thou shalt feed my people Israel thou shalt be a captain over Israel so all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron the king David made a, and king David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. The first thing I want us to look at here is that this is the coronation of David. David's headquarters was in Hebron during that time of the... um, Uh, the Civil War that was going on, and as that war came to an end, it was very clear to the people that David was the one who was being blessed by God and that God's hand was upon David and all that were with David. And so the leading elders of these tribes, remember this was a tribal culture back then, and so each of these leading elders of the tribes assembled together to officially recognize as David as their leader, as king over a united Tribe, the United Tribes of Israel. And they begin to try to connect with him. It says here in verse 1 that they spake unto him, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. They begin to try to connect with him as a countryman, as a brother. Hey, remember, David, although we may have been at odds, maybe even at opposite ends of a spear, we are your brethren. We are all of the same bone and same flesh of our father Abraham. Then they begin to connect with him as a leader and as a soldier. They say in verse two, in times past when Saul was king over us, thou was he that led us out and brought us in Israel. They remember the time when he used to work for Saul and Saul would put him as a captain over thousands and he would take them out into battle against the Philistines and God would bless them and then he would bring them home from this battle. And they begin to try to connect with him and saying, you are our brother, you are our flesh, you are one a leader over us and now we want to make a covenant. This word here that's translated league is the word covenant here. And they say, we want you to be king over Israel. Now, I want you to remember, we're gonna do a few things as just a mental exercise through these next few points. I want you to remember something that's gonna stick out because it's going to show up again when we look into the future of how Jesus fulfills these foreshadowing events. The elders make an interesting remark here in verse two. They say, it is you that led us out and brought us in Israel. And the Lord said unto thee, remember this, thou shalt feed my people Israel. That Hebrew word is the word Ra'ah, which means literally to feed as a shepherd would feed their flock. They say, you have been called by God to feed the people who is Israel. So they gather and they make this covenant with David. They anoint him to be king over Israel. And the writer of this portion of 2 Samuel throws in a timeline for us. He says he reigns 40 years, seven years, six months in Hebron, and 33 years in Jerusalem. Now, this is a very important time in David's life. It's a very important time in the history of all Israel. And I find it very interesting to note, this is just kind of a side note, of how much of a lack of fanfare there is over this certain uh, historical event. There are all kinds of fanfares that are shown throughout the narratives of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But in one of the most significant times in the history of Israel, there is not a whole lot said in specific, about what's going on here. There is only five verses in total, and only about two of them really have anything to do with David being crowned as king. Now, David is the most celebrated and most remembered king in Israel of all times. Yet, there isn't a whole lot of fanfare in scripture. I just thought that was interesting to know. There's no mention of dancing, there's no mention of feasting, there's no mention of presents or sacrifices. The only other... Um, place that it's recorded in scripture where uh, this even is recorded as a historical event is in 1 chronicles chapter 11 it's three verses and if you read them they're almost exactly the same word for word no fanfare no dancing no feasting now i I'm wouldn't imagine i would imagine there were probably was some fanfare going on but i think it's just interesting to note how the scripture does not include much of that so this is david's coronation. I can't say much else about it because it's only three verses, but that's David, and he is crowned king over a united Israel. But I want us to fast forward a little bit because we're going to be comparing and looking at David and Jesus, Jesus who is the seed of David. While there are many scriptures and prophecies regarding the seed of David, the Messiah, the Anointed One, Micah, I think, captures the fulfillment of this foreshadowing event By connecting David and Jesus through a specific action. I told you we're going to remember. We're going to hold on to something. Feeding my people. Ah, ah. Micah chapter 5. You can turn there or it will also be on the screen. But Micah chapter 5 verses 2 through 4 say this. Micah is talking specifically about this future king the seed of david who will come he says in verse 2 but thou bethlehem Euphrata, though thou be little among the thousands of judah yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is a ruler that is to be ruler in israel whose goings forth have come from old from everlasting therefore will he give uh, "'Give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. "'Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel.'" Look at it, here it is. "'And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, "'in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. "'And they shall abide, for now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth.'" If you look at the scripture in Micah, it is the same exact word that ties both what David was called to do and what this future king who we know is Jesus will do, to stand and feed in the strength of the Lord. Two important statements here I wanted to look I want us to look at briefly in Micah. The first one it says who's going forth have been from old, from everlasting. This statement differentiates that this what Micah is talking about is not just another king in the line of David. This is not just some other king that's going to come along from Bethlehem. This is a specific statement that differentiates a mortal king from an eternal king a natural king from a supernatural king he says here also that he will stand and feed this statement uniquely connects david and his seed the seed of david the messiah which we'll talk about a little bit in a few lessons future who we know through uh, because we live on this side of history is jesus this word here used, ra'ah, is the exact same phrase that we see in 2 Samuel 5, verse 4. And the statement is a reference to the shepherding role of the king. Now, it's interesting, I was looking and I was digging through Scripture because in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4, the elders say that God had said to David that he was going to do this, that he was going to, was going to feed the people. Uh, in verse 2, you'll feed my people Israel. Now, I've, I looked all throughout Scripture, and if you can find it, please let me know, but I have found no iteration, no written record of God saying that to David. Now, I believe that that God did say that to David. Perhaps he just didn't have it recorded. But I think it's very interesting, and the reason why I point that out is because I don't think it's an accident that that phrase is in that verse, because that specifically connects Jesus and David together. It's very, very, very cool. It's almost like God wrote this book supernaturally. It's interesting, though, know, if you look through a historical perspective, the idea of the Good Shepherd King is a very ancient Near Eastern concept dating back to even before biblical times. That, and a, a guy named, by the name of Jack Vansell, who writes. Um, In a a dictionary, a Bible dictionary, wrote said it this way, "...throughout Mesopotamian Mesopotamian history, the shepherd image was commonly used to designate gods and kings. And as a title for kings, this use is attested from practically every period. The king, as a shepherd and as a representative of the gods, was expected to rule with justice and to show kindness in counseling, protecting, and guiding the people through every difficulty." Now, as I mentioned before, we live on this side of history, so it's no secret that the position of Lord, the position of King is already and has always belonged to Jesus. But the practicality of his coronation, because we're comparing the two, David's coronation and Jesus being coronated as King, the practicality of Jesus being coronated as King is not yet because there are still millions of people and hundreds of nations who have not recognized Jesus as king. But Philippians chapter 2 has something to say about that. Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11 says this, wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of things of heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, for that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This future day is settled, that there will be a time when Jesus, the seed of David, will be crowned King of the nations, and forever he will rule the nations, and every knee and every tongue. Will bow and confess that He is Lord and King over humanity, heaven, and earth. Now there are many slogans throughout the re- history of the Revolution, if you study it much, that um, uh, have kind of like kept kept with us as a nation. That kind of inspire us to remember uh, the, those early days of fighting for our freedom. Um, Nathan Hales, I regret that I have one life to live, uh, sorry, one life to, uh, to lose for my country. Patrick Henry says, give me liberty or give me death, right? Uh, General Gadsden's, famous, don't tread on me, right? That's one that, that, that pops up from here, here to there. There's a hotly debated slogan, though, I've learned this. There's a hotly debated slogan of whether or not this one actually existed. On April 18th, 1775, or the story goes, the British soldiers ordered John Adams, John Hancock, and a few others to disperse in the name of George, the sovereign king of England. And Adams responds with this slogan. We recognize no sovereign but God and no king but Jesus. And while this, this slogan is hotly debated by those who are pro-Christian uh, heritage and pro-non-Christian heritage, uh, against Christian heritage alike, I think it might be time for us to reignite the no king but King Jesus kind of slogan in our nation. The Founding Fathers, I think, would be taken aback by the dip in morality that we have after we've ousted God and uh, his, his truth from public schools and the public square. A columnist by the name of Sewell Duke wrote in his his column Restoring Civilization, he wrote, quote, echoing many founders, George Washington noted that morality is is a necessary spring of popular government. The famous apocryphal saying goes like this, America is great because America is good. If she ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. For sure, he writes, we can't MAGA or make America great again unless we Mama make America moral again. I think to make America immoral again, our culture must return back to Jesus as our foundation and our cornerstone. That every American must embrace the ideals of our Constitution and of the Word of God or we will be lost as a nation. To make America moral again or Mama And no king but King Jesus, those phrases really are simpatico. You can't have one without the other. But I want you to know that you and I, talking about right now, we can live in hope because we serve a king, King Jesus, who will one day rule and reign and we will be with him if we know him as Savior. The second event I want us to look at today from 2 Samuel chapter 5, if you're not, we can head back in there, is that there's a city that's prepared. A city prepared. Verses 6 through 9, the scripture reads this, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem unto the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land which spake unto David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither, thinking David cannot come in thither. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, and the, the same as the city of David. And David said, On that day, whosoever getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are, that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Wherefore, they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. So David dwelt in the fort and called it the city of David. And David built round about from Milo inward. Look on at verse 11. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. The very first thing that David does when he is crowned king that's recorded here in Scripture is that he goes to establish a city fortress and to drive out the long-tolerated enemy who has been living in the center of Israeli territory since since Joshua and the people of Israel had crossed into the promised land. The people of Israel were given instruction by God to drive out every Canaanite out of the land. Yet Joshua and the elders did not do so. According to Joshua chapter 15, verse 63, the people failed to heed the commandment of God. In verse 63, it reads, as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out, but the Jebusites dwell in the children of Judah at Jerusalem unto this day. Judges says it this way, Judges 121, and the children of Benjamin did not drive out the the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem, but the Jebusites dwell in the city of Benjamin in Jerusalem unto this day. The Jebusites, who were um, cousins to the Canaanites, they were part and parcel of the people who were pagan, yet they were still living in the territories of the children of God, even up to the time when David was there. The rest of them had been driven out for the most part, but the Jebusites still inhabited the city which is called Jerusalem at the top of the mountain. The Jebusites remained in the land for generations and there were a constant sore to the people of God. But it would seem that David had had his eye on this city for some time. We kind of glazed over this verse when we looked at the account of David and Goliath. But back when David slew Goliath, after he slew him, verse 54 of chapter 17 in 1 Samuel, it says that David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem and he put his armor in his tent. I think what's interesting here is it would be weird for David to take the head of Goliath to a city that belonged to the people of God because historically it didn't. So here's what I think is going on. Here's the Corey commentary. I think David, being a faith-filled young man, who had looked in the face of Goliath, the, the, the giant tyrant, who had been calling out the people of God, who had been cursing the name of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, slew that Philistine, slew that, slew that pagan uh, uh, warrior, and he said, you know what, there are some more pagans in our nation, and I want them to know that they ain't gonna, hang, they ain't gonna stay in our nation very much longer. And so he goes by and he runs, and he throws that head at the, at the Jebusites. He says, you guys are next. That's the quarry commentary. But as long as David was king, he had turned his full attention to capturing the pagan stronghold of Jerusalem. Here's what the city of Jerusalem was like back in David's, David's time. It was atop a mountain surrounded by steep cliffs. There were, it was a walled city, which was a big deal back in the day before siege engines had become and they were rolling off uh, uh, the, the, the um the, the design floor. It was a big deal to have a walled city, especially one that was surrounded by steep gullies. It, was, it had a controlled water source, which was a big deal for a walled city. That water source was historically dug through an extensive water tunnel and shaft system and a network that provided fresh water for the entire city that people could stay in their walled city and never have to come out. The people of Jerusalem, however, were not the people of God. Back in David's time, they had a long-standing uh, standoff, if you would, between the Jebusites and the people of God. And they also had a long-standing pride. They kind of remind me of this meme from the movie Monty Python, if you've ever seen it. They were up on their walled cities, and they would make fun of the people of Israel. And they say here in verse um, ver- uh, chapter 5, uh, verse... Uh, let's look back at here. Verse six, verse six, here's what they say. It says, saying, except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither. What were they saying? They were saying, if, if you can't defeat the blind people and the lame people that we're gonna leave to, def- to, to, to guard our walls, then you have no chance against us. They were saying, we don't really need to protect ourselves from you guys down there. All, we can just put the lame people, the blind people to guard our walls because we are impenetrable. You cannot take our city. Obviously, this got under the skin of King David and he, uh, was, um, he challenged his men. It's, it's recorded in a little bit more um, specifics in the book of Chronicles. But he, he challenges his men to get up a water shaft and to take the city. Although these people had lived in a strong city they had uh, people who had a long standing uh, uh, arrogance to them there was one major problem they underestimated God's king and i want you to hold on to that statement because we're going to see that again they underestimated God's king in the face of ridic- ridicule and pride david and his men take the hill of jerusalem it's unclear um, as to how they did it, it's mentioned here that he goes up a water shaft. But from, from either way, we know that he, there's an, an, an advantage that was taken. Somehow, they get through the water system and they invade and they take the city and subdue it, according to verse 8. And David fulfills God's purpose and sets up a kingdom and a fortress called Zion. In verse 7. Interesting enough, this is the first time that the word Zion is mentioned in the Old Testament. And in response to the unified Israel and the setting up of the kingdom of Zion, the prosperous king of Tyre, in verse 11, sends tribute and resources to David who builds a palace out of them. Now, obviously, this guy... Had some reigns because he sticks around even to Solomon's reign, and he provides cedars and uh, and marbles to build the, the the house of God in Jerusalem. So G, so David sets up Jerusalem. Now let's fast forward because one day Jesus is going to set up a new Jerusalem. Revelation chapter twenty one. We don't have time to study this entire chapter, but in its entirety, this chapter gives us details of what that new Jerusalem is going to look at. Verse one begins, it says, "'I saw a new heaven and a new earth, "'for the first heaven and first earth were passed away, "'and there was no more sea. "'And I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, "'coming down from God out of heaven, "'prepared it as a bride adorned for her husband. "'And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, "'Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, "'and he will dwell with them, "'and they shall be his people.'" And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away uh, all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, no crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. If your scripture is like mine, those those words are highlighted in red because those are the words of Jesus, the king who is setting up this new Jerusalem. Now, there are so many fulfillments here that we cannot take time to look at, and they are exciting to look at. But Jesus, the Messiah, the seed of David, who will one day sit on David's throne, is prophetically seen here ushering in the fortress city called the New Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And the entire chapter, verse 21, is given to its massive size and the details and the foundations and the gates and the square mileage. It's amazing if you have time to read through, look at that and study that. But the story is zoomed out from the perspective of history and it demonstrates the exact copy of David's story. A land that is occupied by prideful, arrogant pagans is defeated by the king and a new city is founded. That's what we see in a messianic psalm according to Psalm chapter 2. I told you to remember, hold on to the people underestimating God's king. We see it again. In psalm, chapter 2 is a messianic psalm, meaning that it's talking about the coming Messiah, that anointed king who will reign in David, on David's throne. Verse chap, uh, Chapter 1 says, Why do the heathen rage? And why the people a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then he shall speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. One day soon, Jesus, the son of David, is going to roll back those clouds, and in eternity to come, he is going to set up his kingdom, the new Jerusalem, out of the lands of the raging heathen. And you and I and every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ will be there too, to live with him in a place where all tears are wiped away, and all sickness is cast, and all death is cast into the lake of fire. That should give you some excitement and that we we can live in hope right now because that coming kingdom is sure that the king is one day going to be crowned and he is going to set up this kingdom which we will be taking part in and it's going to be prepared for us. My 16th birthday, I was thinking back as I was looking through some of these pictures. My 16th birthday, I had one thing that I had asked my parents for. I, I said, I wanted to have a party. And they said, yeah, you're a teenager. You're like way too old for parties nowadays. And so I was like, okay, fine. And I just kind of slugged it off as fine. I, I do want to have a party anyway because um, I'm 16, right? And so my... It was a Wednesday, I was remembering back. So Wednesday, was my my norm was to go right from school. I went back, I went home, changed. I was 16, I was driving at that time. And my norm on Wednesday was to go to youth group. And so I went to youth group. Um, Our youth group at the time met in a separate building uh, from our main auditorium. And so our youth room was in one area. Uh, It's kind of like a fellowship hall. And then after we finished youth group, I was in the choir and our choir practice was on a Wednesday night after church. And so I went over to the main auditorium where the choir met and we were practicing, and I remember it was late. It was getting into the evening, usually about eight thirty, nine o'clock. Things are starting to wind down, and I remember right after choir practice, I didn't think about it too much at the time. But as I th- look back and think about it, it was a little bit odd. Um, almost everybody disappeared out of the auditorium, like super quick. And uh, I had a few of my uh, friends from our youth group who were like, hey, Corey, uh, come over here into the youth youth room with us. We forgot something. And I was just like, fine, okay, I got to get home, but it's school day, but all right, fine, I'll go over with you. And as they're leading me over, we walk into, the room is completely dark. We walk in, all the lights turn on, and what do I hear but surprise! And there was a surprise birthday party that had been prepared for me. And I'll tell you what, there was was, I can't remember like a more joyful time as a teenager than to hear that. When you walk in, and it, I had friends, family, people from school, uh, a bunch of people from our church stayed. It was super late, but they stayed and, and just uh, just kind of uh, were, it made my day. It made my day, for sure, to be able to, to know that I had a family and friends who loved me and they had prepared for my coming. Isn't that what Jesus is going to do? I go to prepare a place for you, he says. I think you and I can live in hope today because we have a Jesus, a king, who's preparing a place for us and he's gonna give it to us one day. Third event, and we're gonna close. The Lord is glorified. Verses 10, and 11, 10, 11, and 12 as we close this portion of David's, scripture, David's life out. Verse 10 says, David went on and grew great and the Lord of hosts was with him. We already read verse, uh, verse 11, verse 12. David perceived that the Lord had established his king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. I want you to, to, to grab a hold of a phrase here that we see in verse, verse 10. David went on and grew great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. Following the coronation and the construction of Jerusalem, David goes on to point out the reason why everything was successful. It wasn't because David was a mighty warrior. It wasn't because he was a talented musician. It wasn't because he was a cunning strategist or a man of passion. It was because the Lord established him and the Lord of hosts was was with him. David was complacent and usable in the hands of the almighty God. And so David went on and grew great. We don't, we don't see that in Saul's life. Saul wasn't a king who was marked by humility. He was one who was prideful, who was arrogant, who was constantly thinking of himself, looking out for his own interests, looking out for his own family's legacy, and he leaves himself in ruin. But David here, in humility, says that God is great, and he is the one who has blessed me. And here's, here's the key, that God makes David great in the service of his people, This is the significance of it all. Verse verse 12, he establishes him king over Israel and exalts his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. We see that the Lord of hosts is with David. Who else is the Lord of hosts with? It's an interesting phrase because the Lord of hosts is a phrase only used predominantly in the Old Testament. It's not really found in the New Testament. So we see Jesus. We've already established their connection. The seed of David the coming king, the Messiah king, he will rule, he will reign over the nations. You know, in just a few weeks, I didn't count the days, I was going to count the days and make people all go, oh, but I don't know how many, does anybody know how many days it is till Christmas? Anybody? In just, in just a few weeks, we're going to be celebrating Christmas, aren't we? The trees are going to go up, the lights are going to go up, carols are going to start singing. My most favorite of all Christmas passages has a great line in it. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. We'll end with this. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of his increase, of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth ever, forever, even forever, the The zeal of who? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Jesus, the once and future king over all of God's people will reign and the Lord of hosts will make it happen just like the Lord of hosts made it happen for David. I want to tell you that you and I can live in peace today because God has things under control. Recent news, politics, social affairs, inflation rates, voting results, have gotten us down, I think. But I want to tell you this, chin up. Get your eyes on where they need to be because Jesus, the coming king, is going to rule and reign. In his new Jerusalem, let's look to the perfect king. Would you bow your heads with me?